Back in the 1800s, there was a writer by the name of Leo Tolstoy. You probably had to read some of his books when you were in high school or college, like War and Peace. Well, the reason why I mention him is when Leo was nine years old, he had this crazy idea that God wanted him to fly. And where he came up with this, I'm not sure, because this is back in the days when people never, ever heard of airplanes. I mean, back in the 1800s, the only thing you'd ever see flying up there in the sky were birds, not people. And yet, little Leo, nine-year-old Leo, believed with all his heart that God wanted him to fly. In fact, he felt this so strongly, one day he climbed to the top of a three-story building and jumped out the window. Needless to say, things did not turn out well. He suffered a number of broken bones from which he eventually recovered. But what he didn't recover from for the longest time was the bruise on his soul. His faith in God had been shattered. Leo said, I just couldn't understand why God didn't come through for me. I mean, I was just convinced this is something God wanted me to do. He wanted me to fly. Yet instead of flying, he let me fall. God let me down. So Leo said, for the longest time, I was just so disappointed in God. For the longest time, I didn't want to have anything to do with him. Yet years later, as an adult, Leo could look back on that incident and realize how silly all of this was. The, the problem was not with God. The problem was with Leo and his expectations. Leo was expecting something that God had never promised to him. Leo wanted to fly, but that was Leo's dream, not God's dream. So that day when he jumped out the third story window, he discovered in a painful way that what he thinks and what God thinks is sometimes two different things. The disciples had a similar experience to that in Acts chapter 1. Do you remember the setting? It's about 40 days after the resurrection and the disciples can sense that Jesus is getting ready for something new. They're about to enter a new season, a new phase in the unfolding of God's master plan. So the next time they get together, the, the disciples are super excited. They're, they're all pumped up. They're just high with expectations because they think they know what Jesus is getting ready to do. So the next time they get together, it's the disciples who initiate the conversation. They ask, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? God, are you ready to finish the plan? God, are you, or, or Jesus, are you ready to make everything right for God's people? And Jesus shocks him. He says, that's not for you to know. It's not for you to know the times and seasons that the Father has set by his own authority. Now, understand, Jesus wasn't saying their question was unimportant or inappropriate or, or that what they were hoping to see was never going to happen. He just said, that's something you don't need to know right now. But here's what you do need to know. And then he speaks the words in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, which is the key verse in the whole book of Acts. Jesus said, and you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you so that you can be my witness. Be that witness, whether that's in Jerusalem or Judea or Samaria or to the very end of the earth. See, you and I are sitting here today worshiping God and reading the Bible because those words have come true. Through God's power, God's people have taken God's message throughout God's world. But on that day, when the disciples first heard this, they were puzzled and confused because Jesus said, there's some things you can't know right now, like when God is going to restore all things, when he's going to finally change our circumstances. What you need to know is this, wherever you go, wherever you happen to be, in that moment, that time, that place, you have a calling. And your calling is this, to be a witness for Jesus. Well, right after he says that, something totally unexpected happens. The Bible says, and when Jesus had said these things, the disciples looking on, suddenly Jesus was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while the disciples are standing there gazing at the sky, suddenly two angels appear and said, men of Galilee, what are you doing standing here? What are you doing staring at the sky? Now put yourself in their shoes for a moment. It was just about a month and a half ago that you thought you lost Jesus. That day when he died on the cross, it seemed like your whole world had come to an end. Never had they felt so hopeless. 
And yet three days later, Jesus comes back to life again and they breathe a sigh of relief. And now 40 days later, when life is just beginning to make sense again, he leaves again. You know, it's like a family. They finally get their dad back. He finished his tour duty. They're overseas. And, and finally they get him back home and they're so glad to have him home. I mean, now that he's back home, you just want to hang on to him forever, right? And then a couple months later, the unexpected happens. He gets deployed again. You think he's leaving again? Man, that stings. So it is ch Acts chapter 1. Jesus leaves and the disciples are they're just stunned. They're standing there. They're staring at the sky. They're puzzled. They're confused because there's so much they don't know right now. There's so much they don't have. Like clarity, perfect clarity in what we're supposed to be doing next. I mean, yeah, Jesus did say wherever you happen to be, whether it's Jerusalem or Judea, Samaria or some other part of the world. I mean, who knows where you might wind up someday. Wherever you happen to be at that moment, that time, that place, you're to be a witness for me. Now, here's what we've got to understand. It's easy when you begin your life with Jesus to start off with the wrong expectations. You get this picture, this image in your mind. Here's what the Christian life's supposed to look like. Here's what it's supposed to feel like. And yet on those days when things don't turn out the way you thought they should, it's easy to get angry and upset. Hey, what's going on? When are things going to begin to finally settle down? When are things in my life going to begin to calm down? Why is everything so stressful? Why is God letting me go through all these troubles and trials? Or maybe you're frustrated because you got this decision to make. Do I date this person? Do I take this job? Do I go to this school? And yet God's not giving you any clarity. He's giving no definitive answers to your prayers. It's like he's not even paying attention to you. And you're frustrated. Man, there's so much I don't know right now. How can I possibly move forward when my future is so cloudy? God, when are you going to clear things up? God, when are you going to speak to me? And in a moment like that, it's easy to feel disappointed. It's easy to feel like God has let you down. He hasn't. The problem's not with God. The problem's with us and our wrong expectations. See, one of the lessons we'll learn when you go through the book of Acts is just like the disciples, so it's going to be true for us. There's going to be many times in this life, many times in this world, when we don't know. We don't have answers to our questions. But what we do know is this, whatever our circumstances, whether it's something we expected or something we didn't expect, whatever our circumstances, in that moment, that time, that place, we have a calling. And our calling is this, to be a witness for Jesus. Now I want you to see how this works itself out in the book of Acts chapter 16. I want you to take a look at some of the surprises the Apostle Paul goes through, and not all of them are pleasant. And yet in the midst of all these surprises, the Apostle Paul learns something really important. I can serve God anywhere. And knowing that brings a sense of power and a sense of hope to his life. Let's take a look at this, Acts chapter 16. Before we read the verses, let me just kind of give you some background. When you get to the 16th chapter of the book of Acts, you're, you're reading about four missionaries, Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke. And they're getting ready to head into some new territory. They want to go to a part of Asia where the gospel has never been served or shared before. So it's a great idea. And yet, every time they move in that direction, the Holy Spirit closes the door. Nope, can't go there. Nope, can't go there. Nope, can't go there. Well, after that happens a number of times, they kind of get confused and say, well, why can't we take the, uh, they, they need to hear the gospel. Why can't we go there? You know, what are we supposed to do next? And then one night, Paul gets this vision from God. And it's in a dream. And in a dream, he sees a man from Macedonia. Macedonia, that's the northern part of Greece. That's the part of the world where Alexander the Great grew up. Paul knows that. He's aware of his geography, his history. So a man from Macedonia, man, that's got his attention. And in this dream, this man from Macedonia is talking to Paul and says, Paul, come over here. Come over here and help us. So God's making it clear. He wants Paul and his team to take the gospel to Europe, not to Asia, but take the gospel to Europe. Well, wow, 
I wasn't expecting that. Well, God, if that's what you want to do, hey, we'll do it. So they changed plans and they hadn't, instead of Asia, they head to Europe. They go the opposite direction. So they come to the city of Philippi, ready to begin this new ministry. And yet as they get there, nothing works out the way they would have expected. See, every time Paul and his team came to a new place, they had this strategy. And it's a good strategy. Whenever they came to a new place, they'd always start in the synagogue. That's where the Jewish people get together to worship God and read and study their Old Testament. So that gave Paul and his team something common to work with. You know, hey, we're Jews. We worship God. We read and study the Old Testament, too. We got a lot in common here. And from that common base, they can begin to talk to people about Jesus. Well, they get to the city of Philippi, and there's no synagogue. See, in order to have a synagogue, you've got to have at least 10 Jewish men in that town. And there's not even 10 Jewish guys here. Wow. We've never encountered a situation like this before. What are we supposed to do? And then out of the blue, they hear about a group of women who kind of get together from time to time down by the river to pray. So Paul says, okay, we'll start there. But in Paul's mind, he's got to be so confused. You remember that vision he had from God? He saw a man from Macedonia. So as soon as they got to Philippi, Macedonia, that area, they're expecting to meet some key man. But the first key contact they encounter is not a man, it's a woman. And she's not even a Jew, she's a Gentile. It's a woman named Lydia. And then what's surprising for Paul, he's a Jew. He grew up in a, in a Jewish environment. And in that environment, one of the common daily prayers he hear other Jewish men pray was this, God, I thank you. I thank you that you did not make me a Gentile or a woman or a slave. And no doubt in his former life, Paul had prayed that prayer several times too. But guess what? The first three converts in the city of Philippi, first three people they're able to lead to Jesus, a Gentile, a woman, a slave. <laughs> Nothing's working out the way we would have expected. And the surprises just keep on coming. They hadn't been there very long when Paul and Silas, one day they get arrested. And immediately they're put on trial. All kinds of accusations are made against them. Not a one of the charges are true. And yet the crowd is so stirred up that day once they've made their accusations, they say, hey, it's obvious they're guilty. Let's just, let's just punish them right here and now. So they're in that public setting. They strip them of their clothes. And you've got to keep in mind, Paul and Silas, they're Jewish men raised in the Jewish culture where it's been instilled in them from day one, this principle of modesty. Have all your clothes taken off to stand there naked in front of all these people. Nothing more shameful or humiliating than for men like these. And if that's not bad enough, then they begin to beat them with rods, rods that are as thick as a billy club and as long as a, a, a broomstick. And they're in a Roman setting, not a Jewish setting. So there's no limit to the number of lashes. You can beat them as long as you like. So they beat the two of them until they're literally black and blue with bruises. And now with those cracked ribs and broken bones, they throw them into this filthy prison. Where you've heard Rob talk before, they would put the feet in the stocks and the hands in the chains and put them at such painful, awkward angles, it would just add to the torture. And they just leave them there to suffer. And it's at that point we pick up our scripture, verse 25, Acts chapter 16 and verse 25. Now keep in mind, if you're Paul and Silas, at this moment in time, you've got to be wondering, God, where are you? You're the one that gave us this vision. You're the one that said, come over here and help. We answered the call. We did exactly what you asked us to do. So what are we doing in jail? And how can we possibly serve you in a place like this? Watch how God answers the questions. It says, verse 25, about midnight. There's got to be a number of reasons why Luke gives us this time indicator. I think one of the reasons to let us know it's been about 12 hours since the trial. In a Roman setting, like you would have in the city of Philippi, the trials always took place in the morning. And they were always to be finished before the middle of the day, before noon. So it's been at least 12 hours since they were beaten with those rods. They've been suffering for a long time. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. 
when I see this now, I, I think of Rita K. Webster. I think of that, that time when she was fighting cancer, and there were moments when the pain was so intense. And yet, late at night, down there at the end of the hall, the seventh floor of St. Vincent's Hospital, she starts singing songs. For some nights, her son, John David, was in the room, too. And the two of them, one would initiate, and then the next song she'd initiate, and then he'd initiate, and they just sing for hours on end, late into the night. And you could hear it clear down at the other end of the hall, so whenever the nurses got a break, they'd come down and join in the worship service, too. A worship service in a cancer ward? Who would have expected that? A worship service in a prison, especially a prison like this? Something supernatural is going on. So Paul and Silas are praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners are listening to him. Midnight, normally they'd be asleep at this point in time, but now they're wide awake. And they're not wide awake because they're complaining and whining. Hey, would you guys kind of quiet it down? I'm trying to sleep. There's not one complaint here. They're wide awake because they're taking it all in. They're listening. The Holy Spirit has now got a hold of their hearts. And then suddenly there's a great earthquake. So the foundations of the prison were shaken, which means they're chained to those walls. Now the chains have come loose from the walls. The prison doors are open. Everyone's bonds and chains unfastened. So when the jailer awoke and he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and he was about to kill himself because he assumed the prisoners had escaped. Here's something else supernatural. But Paul cried with a loud voice, said, don't harm yourself. We are all here. And in that kind of a setting, as best we know, studying what prisons were like, there's a whole book on this, what prisons were like there in the town of, especially in a city like Philippi, there's probably about 50 to 75 prisoners. Paul and Silas are the only Christians here. So when the doors fly open and the chains come loose, you know, hey, they're taking off. Here's my chance. I'm going to escape. Not a one of them moves. Not a one budges. Why? They've just been through a worship service. The Holy Spirit's got a hold of their heart. Everything here is supernatural. So the jailer, he's starting to put two and two together. Jailer, he calls for the lights, rushes in, checks it out. There's not a thing that's normal or natural about this situation. Something divine is going on. So trembling with fear, he, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And now he's, he's got all kinds of questions. Even though he was asleep for a moment, he'd heard some of the songs and he heard about the trial, what they were being charged with. And they're talking about this guy named Jesus. And he's getting curious and he wants to know. So he says, Paul, Silas, I need to talk. But not here, not in front of the other. Let's come outside. So verse 30, he brought him outside and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And Paul, or Paul and Silas, they said, believe. Got to believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household. No doubt the jailer's been talking to him about his family. It's not just me. I'm concerned about my family too. We need a change. It's something only God can bring about. But how does that happen? The jailer, he's new to all this. He doesn't know that much about Jesus yet. What does it really mean to believe in him? So he needs a much fuller explanation. So Paul and Silas, they take the time and, and they spoke the word of the Lord. Not their thoughts, their opinions. They spoke the word of the Lord to them. So all who heard and all who were in his house as well. So the jailer took him, Paul and Silas, that same hour of the night. and He washed their wounds. But the jailer and his family are about to have a washing too. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. So to rejoice, he brought Paul and Silas into his house, set food before him, and he rejoiced along with his entire family. Now we know what it means to believe in God. 500 years ago, there was a movement called the Reformation. And people were coming up with this crazy idea. They called it the priesthood of all believers. And they didn't come up with that idea on their own. They got it right out of the Bible. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 10, where the Bible says, You are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. 
Now keep in mind, this is 16th century Europe with those big, massive cathedrals. And when, in that day and time, when people heard the word priest, they're just automatically thinking of those guys up there in the church building with the long robes, you know, the chosen few who alone know how to get close to God, who alone know how to connect with the Lord. We'll let them figure it all out, and then they can pass along to us. They're the priests, not us. And yet along comes the Reformation, and people are starting to say, well, that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible says we're all priests. If you're a farmer, hey, that's wonderful. But if you're a Christian, you're more than just a farmer. You're a priest, too. You're a law professor. Hey, that's great. But if you're a Christian, you're more than just a professor of law. You're here to serve God as a priest, too. You're a student at a community college. Hey, fine. But if you're a Christian, you're more than just a student. You're here to serve as one of God's priests. What does a priest do? A priest represents God. He brings God's blessings upon other people. He helps to usher other people into the presence of the Lord so that they, in a very personal way, can connect with Him, too. And now, during the Reformation, people are beginning to discover you don't just do that in a church building. You can do that when you're working out in the field. You can do that when you're working in a court of law. You can do that even when you're sitting in a class at a community college. You can serve God anywhere. Johann Sebastian Bach understood this. He's one of the greatest musical composers of all time. And one of the interesting things he would do, every time he'd come up with a new piece of music, he would put two sets of initials on the paper. The first initials were his own, JSB, Johann Sebastian Bach. And then the second set of initials was SDG. It stood for a Latin phrase. It literally means glory to God alone. Now, here's what's really fascinating to me. Most of Bach's music has no lyrics. It's just music, really good music. I mean, the kind of music, when you come to appreciate it, it does something to you. It makes something come alive on the inside. It lifts you up and inspires you. See, Bach understood when he's writing that music, he's not writing it for the public at large. He's writing that music for God. Bach understood when he's writing that music, he's being a priest. He's hoping to write the kind of music that will help usher people into the presence of the Lord. Do you remember the comment that Jesus made one day? He said, if anyone, so get this, anybody can do this. He said, if anyone gives a cup of water in my name, they will be rewarded. Now think about this. You talk about something small and insignificant, so ordinary and mundane. What possible good could come out of such a simple act, handing a glass of water to somebody? Yet Jesus said if you do it in the right way with the right kind of heart because you want to serve him, because you want to be a witness for him, yet that simple act now becomes something very, very special, something sacred. Jesus is teaching you can serve God anywhere. Two years ago, Sherm Henderson, Sherm Henderson and his wife, Judy, they were checking out of resort in West Virginia. So Sherm went out to the parking lot to get the car and bring it back to the hotel so they could load up all their luggage. But as he was driving back to the hotel, he had a heart attack, passed out, drove the car right into the hotel lobby. And here he is, passed out, trapped inside this locked car. Well, there just happened to be a lady standing in the lobby that day, a nurse who was on vacation from North Carolina. She heard all the commotion. She rushed over, saw the vehicle, and saw Sherm turning blue. So she immediately shouted to all the people, if we don't get to this man in the next five minutes, he's not going to make it. Well, there just happened to be a groundskeeper standing there that day, had a shovel at his side, so he broke the window, unlocked the door, pulled Sherm out so the nurse could begin to help him. And for the next 17 minutes, she performed CPR. For the next 17 minutes, she kept Sherm alive until the ambulance arrived and took him to the hospital. A couple weeks after that, after Sherm Henderson had recovered from his cardiac arrest, he tracked down this lady that had saved his life. He wanted to call and express his gratitude. But when he finally got her on the phone, it was the lady, the nurse, who burst into tears. Said, Sherm, Sherm, you are an answer to one of my prayers. 
See, for years I've been praying that God would give me an opportunity to use the skills I have to save somebody's life. I just never figured he'd let it happen at a resort when I was on vacation. You can serve God anywhere. See, when you answer the call to follow Jesus, when you answer the call to be one of his disciples, you're to be his disciples, not just on Sunday morning when you're sitting here in a church building. You're also supposed to be one of his disciples when you're on the job when you're in the gym, when you're sitting in the coffee shop, even on your day off and you're out there shopping, even there, you can be a witness for Jesus. What does the Bible say? Whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, do it all to the glory of God. You can serve God anywhere. Let's pray.